Herzlich willkommen to the Opera Box Score podcast for Monday, March 21. I'm your host, George Cedarquist. Wherever you are, however you're listening, thanks for joining us. This show is the second in our three-part series introducing you to the opera world of Germany. Now, last week I took you around Berlin. Since then, I've been to Meiningen, Weimar, Frankfurt, and Darmstadt. Yeah, go find a map, preferably one published after 1989. My guest is Stefan Umhai, a jack-of-all-trades artist based at the Meiningen Theater. He's an actor, singer, dancer, director, choreographer, stage manager, and guitarist. There is literally nothing connected to the performing arts that this guy can't do or hasn't done. Now, Stefan is a colleague of mine from my days as an assistant director, and he's got lots to say about opera and the challenges it faces in Germany today. Some of them are going to sound pretty familiar. He's also got a story about the intersection between opera and the recent arrival of Syrian refugees in Meiningen that you do not want to miss. But first, I'll let you know about some of the things that you find in German opera houses and that I'd forgotten about since I last lived here. Plus, I'll share with you my top five list of things you have to have on stage if you're directing an opera in this country. We've also got this week's opera headlines and our Monday evening quarterback segment in which I review three shows that I've seen. And Oliver checks in from Chicago with a field report. We are America's talk radio show about opera, period. No one talks with you about opera week in, week out like we do. And what's more, on our show, you get to have your say. Leave us a message on 224-218-9BOX. Again, 224-218-9269. Hey, if you're calling from outside the U.S., you got to put a 1 in front of that. Or you can email us at operaboxscore at gmail.com. Opera Box Score is right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Whether you're allergic to opera or you're a devoted fan, our show is for you. We tackle the week's opera headlines and body slam them into a sports radio setup. The result, 60 minutes of play-by-play analysis, exclusive interviews, and scandalous opinions. Plus the heroes, villains, and stats from this crazy art form that we love and love to complain about. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. Shock Talk on Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, and Giovanna Jacques. All right, George Cedarquist here host of Opera Box Score. Thanks so much for listening and for tuning in. We're going to kick it off with the Chalk Talk segment, which is the meat and potatoes of our show. Now, last time I talked to you, I had just gotten to Berlin, and I was pretty tired, pretty out of it. I think the show was good. No one complained. I hope the show was good. Um, there is a lot now to add to the mix, because that was all about setup. That was all about terms and conditions. You know I love stats. I do have some stats for you coming up. But we're going to deliver this time around. A lot has happened since I was talking to you in Berlin. Uh, Two days after that, I went to Meiningen, which is, as I said to my wife, it's between Berlin and Frankfurt. She was like, that could be basically anywhere. So you got to go look at a map. It's an important town, though, and I'll tell you why it is. The theater geeks among you will know of a man called the Duke of Saxe Meiningen who at the end of the 19th century had a band of players. He was obviously a very wealthy man. He was a duke. And he decided to create 
an ensemble of actors, build them a theater in this tiny town of 20,000 people where the, he lived. And from there, he developed two things. First of all, he developed the idea of naturalism in theater so that we were really showing regular people's lives. We were showing people going about their everyday sort of business. And so the aesthetic of theater, this was not an opera necessarily, but in theater, completely changed under his direction. And the second part, why he's important, was exactly that, was directing, is that he created the idea of the director. My job, I'm a stage director and opera myself, basically did not exist 150 years ago. That was created by this guy, the Duke of Saxe-Meiningen, in his theater, which still exists today. Has the theater been like burnt down? Yes. Has it been bombed? I don't think so, but it's definitely been rebuilt. It is a beautiful theater, though. You should go to the website, Opera Box Score dot squarespace.com and you can take a look at the theater and see just how beautiful it is but it's an important place and i was there to see some shows and watch some rehearsals and do some interviews i took a day trip to weimar which is a couple hours away actually so pretty close in american terms and the other side of the state in terms of german terms the state that we're talking about is well, we would say Thuringia in English or Thuringen in German. And I had an interview in Weimar as well, and that is where I saw uh, the second show of my three, which we're going to get to in the Monday evening quarterback segment. After that, I headed down to Frankfurt, saw an opera there, and then ended up in Darmstadt, which is the city that I lived in back in 2011 and 2012 with my family. I want to set up some stats for you because I didn't do this justice last time. And I know Oliver is probably laughing at me back in Chicago because he knows I love stats. But there's a great book which was published in 2011. It's by a guy called Ralph Bollmann. And the title is Valkyrie in Detmold or The Valkyries in, in Detmold. Detmold is a small city in the Ruhrgebiet, sort of in the north west part of Germany. And this whole book is about opera production in the provinces, not in the big cities, not Berlin, not Frankfurt, not Munich, but in the small cities, you know, places with 300,000, 150,000, 50,000 people. These are small towns. Of course, in Germany, they all have opera houses. The book is in German, so you got to brush up on that to read it, which is what I've been doing. There's a lot of pencil lines under words here that I have to like look up. But he makes the point of why the German opera system is so unique. And it's this, is that many of these houses are based on an ensemble system where there's a core group of singers that will play the leading roles, the supporting roles during the course of the season. So they're on a big payroll, uh, you know, bigger than any other sort of day job that they could get in the arts, I'm sure. And the company is built around them. So this is not a unique idea in theater necessarily, but I do think it is an opera. And there are not a lot of examples of this um, in America, certainly not in the big leads. Opera San Jose is probably the biggest company that has like an ensemble of singers that it programs around. But basically you have to go to m much smaller opera companies to see that ensemble. However, there's 81 theaters in Germany that have a, a fest um, 
opera company of singers. And some of these numbers are crazy. So we're looking at these 80 companies. 1,300 soloists have a regular job there. Uh, we have got 600 premieres, opening nights, that are done in these houses. Uh, you look at a place like Stuttgart. And this, is, this stat blows my mind. Stuttgart, it has 1,400 people working at that opera company. And that is the biggest opera company in the world that has a regular ensemble. Obviously, there are bigger opera companies out there in Australia, in New York, uh, in London. But for a city the size of Stuttgart, which I guarantee you is less than 500,000 people, to have that number regularly working in that house is, to me, just incredible. All right. Well, enough with the stats. I don't want to set myself up for teasing from Oliver any more than is necessary. Here's some things that I had forgotten about the opera houses in Germany. The first thing is the cantina, which is the cafeteria, basically. But for any of us who have ever done any performing arts, I think we all know that the real work always happens on the break. The smoke break, the coffee break, the lunch break, the dinner break, that's where relationships are formed. People are still talking about the work, but they're not under the pressure of being in the rehearsal room, singing well, following the conductor, etc. And so the cantina is really the, the center of, act, of activity. Now, there's some good ones and some bad ones, and, uh, you know, people complain. I've been to a, a number of them. Some of them are fancy. Some of them are pretty simple. Uh, I ate a lot of meals in the one in Meiningen, I can tell you, and I thought it was fantastic. Uh, the cantina in Wiesbaden has like five beers on tap, which is crazy. They've all got food. Uh, you can make a meal, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and it's all super, super cheap. Now I'm starting to set myself up for teasing from Giovanna, who, who's, you know, from France. And so she's always teasing Americans when they're like, oh, I went to Europe and the food was so good and the art was so amazing. But it's true. What can I say? I'd also forgotten when you're looking at the theater stage that it tends to never be covered with any sort of material during performance. So rarely do people lay down you know, a false floor onto the stage to make it look pretty. Rarely do they put down any sort of marley or cloth to cover it up. You see it in all of its ugly matte black glory with nail holes and screw holes and bits of furniture that have carved into the floor. You see spike tape from all the productions that are being done there and rep. And this doesn't seem to bother anybody. This always really bothered me that there it wasn't clean. It wasn't beautiful. And it always took me out of the experience. I guess I'm still wrestling with why companies don't put more effort into preserving the floor and into really making it part of the world of the opera, whatever it is. And I mean, this is in every single house. This is in the big houses in Berlin and Frankfurt, all the way down to the little houses in Meiningen. You see that black floor. And again, as a director, it just drives me nuts. I thought that the Germans with all their beautiful 
skill in engineering would have come up with some sort of solution to the the problem of the black floor, but I, I guess not. Lastly, I had forgotten how complicated the scheduling is in the opera houses here. Uh, having been backstage in many of these places, you know, in mine again, in um, Darmstadt, where all the schedules are posted, there are so many things happening under one roof. Theater, opera, classical music, dance. Every theater has all these components to it, you know, from the midsize up to the big size theaters. And so the schedule, it's a thing of beauty. I mean, and this is true to a degree in, in the bigger American houses as well. But when you have such a central piece of culture, one building that has multiple stages, multiple rehearsal rooms, multiple scene shops, and that it's responsible for promoting the culture of ballet, of classical music, of spoken theater, and of sung theater, that is opera, all those people, those are the people that I talked about in the statistics earlier from the Ralph Ballman book, Valkyra and Detmold, all those people, how are they all scheduled? And I'll tell you this, it's a nightmare to be in that position. I've never done it. I know the people who have done it, and I don't envy them at all. That is something that is, you have to have a certain mind for it, I think, to be able to put all of that together. This just in, the two-minute drill. It's time for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know from the past week in two minutes, tops. Just after we taped our show last week, it was announced that English composer Sir Peter Maxwell Davies had died. He was at his home in the Orkney Islands. He was 81 and had been ill with leukemia. Maxwell Davies was a legendary avant-garde composer whose operas include The Lighthouse. English National Opera has confirmed that a deal to change ENO's chorus contracts has been reached with the Equity Union. The settlement will see the ENO chorus move to a nine-month contract, and the chorus will also reduce its number of singers from 44 to 40. Cressida Pollock, the chief executive of ENO, said, I'm delighted that we've been able to reach a deal with Equity. This settlement will contribute to the wider changes in our business model to ensure that ENO becomes a more financially resilient organization able to move forward on a reduced public subsidy. Across London at Covent Garden, the Royal Opera House has emailed ticket holders for its upcoming new production of Donizetti's Lucia de Lammermoor, featuring soprano Diana Damrau in the title role. The show is directed by Katie Mitchell. In an email stated, quote, the team's approach will lead to scenes that feature sexual acts portrayed on stage, end quote. Diana Damrau said to the Guardian newspaper, quote, there is a lot of emotional violence as well as real violence, and there is a lot of anger and tension. This is not something a younger audience should see. The Opera House's warning follows complaints and controversy last year over a graphic rape scene in Damiano Micheletto's production of Rossini's Guillaume Tell. The winners of the annual Metropolitan Opera National Council Grand Finals are soprano Yelena Dayacek, mezzo Emily D'Angelo, countertenor Jakob Orlinski, and baritone Sol Jin and Sean Plum. Keep an eye on these guys. That's the two-minute drill. Well, before we get into our field report from Oliver Macho Camacho, let me just quickly sound off on the two-minute drill there. I'm, I'm shocked that there is this huge drama at the Royal Opera House about this production of Lucia di Lammermoor. Look, the company has already set a precedent by doing this production of Guillaume Tell that featured this graphic rape. 
people were complaining, asking for their money back. So why are people surprised that they are having another graphic production of an opera, which, as The Soprano, Diana Damro said, is full of blood and is full of murder and is full of madness. I, I understand, like, people deserve to be warned, I suppose, but at, at what point does it, does it go too far? I, it seems shocking to me that people are as upset about this as it is shocking a production. I mean, I don't, I don't get it. Maybe I'm too far out there, and maybe nothing surprises me anymore, because frankly, nothing really does surprise me anymore. Very few things surprise me anymore. Oliver Camacho out in Chicago. What's going on? This is Oliver Camacho filing a field report from Chicago, Illinois. America. Ravinia Festival has announced its 2016 summer festival season. This is the first season without James Conlon as the musical director. In fact, Ravinia has no music director for its classical music wing. Audiences have been in decline for Chicago Symphony Orchestra concerts and other classical events at Ravinia Festival. CSO makes its summer home at Ravinia. And it was possible to see operas at Ravinia Festival in concert, really high-quality ones. And this year, there are none. Opera fans do have something to look forward to with recitals given by Matthias Gerna, Matthew Polanzani, and Danielle Denise, but not at the same time. Lyric Opera of Chicago's 2015-16 season came to a close. They still have The King and I coming up later on this spring, but that's not opera. If you are the artistic director of a chamber opera company in Chicago, you might plan to put on performances at the end of March and all of April in 2017. We have sort of a dead zone in Chicago right now uh, during these weeks, but there are some great things to look forward to, such as the Mark Morris version of Daidoenius. It is a completely choreographed version with the singers in the pit and all of the action happening uh, with choreography on stage. Uh, a beautiful show. You can see clips of it on YouTube and I've been waiting forever to see this thing in person. I love it. Highly recommended. Uh, Marilyn Horn is giving a vocal master class at Northwestern University's Beenan School of Music. That happens on April 4th. And those of you who know me know that Marilyn Horn is my favorite singer of all time. And I do think that if you are interested in opera, you would want to see something like this. And finally, Mexican tenor Javier Camarena makes his Chicago debut not at the Lyric Opera of Chicago, but at the Harris Theater for Music and Dance in recital with pianist Angel Rodriguez. Mr. Camarena's star is on the rise, joining what's becoming a crowded field of bel canto tenors who sing very fast and very high. He also joins the ranks of just a few singers who have been able to give encores at the Met. Mr. Camarena just completed a run of Don Pasquale at the Met and is now going on tour in recital. Uh, he'll be stopping in London, San Sebastian, Spain, Washington, D.C., and Chicago. And then he goes to Mexico and Spain to sing in I Puritani. Let's hear Camarena singing what he does best. This is a cabaletta from Rossini's opera La Cenerentola, or Cinderella. 
Mexico. I'm excited to announce that the Harris Theater for Music and Dance would like to extend a discount to listeners of Opera Box Score for the Javier Camarena concert, which takes place once again on Wednesday, March 30th at the Harris Theater. Go online to buy your tickets at the Harris Theater's website and enter the promotion code VOX10, VOX10, VOX10. Uh, to get uh, tickets for $10, which is a substantial discount from the full price. All of these events, the Maryland Horn Master Class, the Mark Morris, Dido and Aeneas, and in fact the Javier Camarena concert can be found on Chicago's newest resource for classical vocal events, and that is vocalartschicago.com. All one word, vocalartschicago.com. Now back to you, George, in Germany, Europe. Opera class, sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score. Who made the grade? Here's Monday evening quarterback. All right, time for Monday evening quarterback, which is when we review operas, and rather than having a highbrow intelligent discussion about them. We just hand out some letter grades and do it in the lowest possible terms. In the midst of my three reviews, I'm going to give you my top five list of things that you absolutely have to have on stage when you are doing an opera in Germany. And you can take those away and you too can do your own opera production. We're going to start with the production of Regina, which was in Meiningen at the theater there. Now, this opera is really not done I was going to say all that often, basically never. It's by Albert Lortzing, uh, who was born in Berlin. He was living at the end of the 19th century. You may have heard of Tsar und Zimmermann, which means the Tsar and the Carpenter. You may have heard of Der Wildschutz, not to be confused with Der Freischutz by Weber, which I'll talk about next. But really, his shows are just not done. The music is high romantic. The plot of Regina is basically about freedom fighters. Uh, it was the uh, Les Miserables of its time. It was written in 1848, which was the year of revolution. And it basically follows... This one man in his crusade to 
unionize all these workers on this um, factory. I was going to say a farm, but it's really a factory. Uh, then he falls in love with Regina, who is the daughter of the factory owner. Then there's this band of revolutionaries that come in. Com comedy ensues, I suppose. Not really. It, it's more about like... Uh, they're, they're dealing with this problem in a funny way by sort of people are being given wine that is too strong and going to sleep. And that's how people escape it. It's kind of a mess, basically. The point is this, is that for two hours and 59 minutes, however long the show was, it was played totally straight. So realistic set, no big gestures. We're in like a factory that's made out of wooden planks were in somebody's house and then literally in the last 30 seconds the bizarre happens which is this a statue of a, a woman's head and i think it was supposed to be the woman germania who is basically the equivalent like of our statue of liberty pretty much she's kind of the hallmark for for freedom uh the statue is wheeled on stage the chorus is belting out the final number of the show all of a sudden, this statue, and this head is like 15 feet tall, starts bleeding black blood from its eyes, and then it bursts into flames. While the chorus, dressed in the nicest of period garbs, grabs uh, little black sponges that they've been holding in their hands and wipes them from their eyes down their cheeks to mirror the black blood that's pouring out of this statue's eyes. Why? Absolutely no idea. My point is, first thing you've got to have when you're doing a show in Germany, your final image of the show has to make absolutely no sense whatsoever. Something else that I really had forgotten about German opera houses and was so surprised about was the, the technical features of the most of the stages. Again, this is an opera house in a town of 20,000 people. This stage and all of its bells and whistles would put most Broadway houses to shame. It's not big, 900 seats, but there are lifts in the stage, there are elevators, there's a turntable. The turntable can turn while things are going up and down. Just the, the, the technical side of it was totally amazing. A for that, even if the idea of doing this opera and a couple of dicey notes here and there from the tenor would give it more like a B plus to a B. After that, I went to Weimar and I saw Defeischutz, which uh, is by Weber, the, really the one sort of big opera that he did. It's not programmed a lot in the U.S. either. Uh, and that was directed by a woman, Andrea Moses, whose work I know of, but I had never actually seen before. Um, this production was definitely a completely modern update. So the, the story is about this man, Max, who is a hunter. He's basically lost his feeling for the game. He shoots his gun, but he can't hit anything anymore. And so what does he do? Makes a pact with the devil so that he can get six bullets, which will go anywhere that they're told to go. And so he can win a shooting competition and get the girl he loves, whose name is Agatha. However, there's a catch, as there always is. And the devil makes a seventh bullet, which 
Max does not have control over and which the devil does. And of course, that bullet is destined to kill Max in the end. But true love saves the day. And through a random twist of fate, the bullet never actually hits Max at the close of the opera. Uh, This show brings me to the next three things that you absolutely have to have when you're doing a show in Germany. First of all, you need to have a random piece of American culture, like let's take all of these 19th century hunters and put them in sunglasses. Makes absolutely no sense. Why? Not really sure. Looked interesting. Second of all, you've got to have an inexplicable use of animals and animal parts. Now I get that in Freischitz, they're hunters hunting, uh, in one scene, Max has got his gun. He shoots it up into the uh, fly tower of the theater, and a huge turkey vulture falls out of the sky at his feet. He then proceeds to whip out a knife, chop off one of the wings, and this wing becomes sort of a icon for the rest of the show that he's basically carrying around. Again, not exactly sure why this was going on. Certainly not in the original text, but looks kind of cool. The next thing that that show really exemplified that you've got to have in a German production is, of course, sexy women in their panties and stockings and garters. Uh, The character of Agatha strips down to her unmentionables in this production in the beginning of the second act when she is singing to her girlfriend Enchin. I mean, and she's, I get the point that she's looking forward to Max coming home and they're going to make love, but it's its relatively gratuitous. Hey, look, I'm not complaining. The singer who had a fantastic voice, by the way, and also was super in shape singing Agata, like, hey, who am I to complain? But you definitely need to have that as well. So going to give the production... A B, I will give the orchestra an A. It's a great score. It's a beautiful romantic score. This is the Weimarer Kapell playing. Just a fantastic orchestra. And you know what? In general, the orchestras in all these houses are really good. Why? Because those guys, mostly guys, there's some women, they're expected to play classical music concerts as well. So these players are far and away some of the best in the land. Last show I'm going to talk about on the segment, Giulio Cesare by Handel. And this is at the Frankfurt Opera. Now, we're in a different league here with the Frankfurt Opera. This is a much bigger opera house. It's pricier. It's in a bigger city. Frankfurt, it's the biggest city in central Germany, 500,000 people. It has a huge financial background. It's on the River Mine, and so sometimes people talk about this city as Manhattan as opposed to Manhattan. A lot of skyscrapers, which really no other German big city has, not even Berlin. The Opera House itself really punches above its weight. First of all, the inside of it is absolutely beautifully done. I was sitting in the cheap seats in the back, which are designed, God bless the Germans, to have a much higher back to them that really goes all the way up to the back of your head so you can like sit up nice and tall and still be really comfortable and can see everything. The production was directed by Johannes Erat, whose work I am hoping to see for the next show down in Munich. I'd heard of him, but I hadn't really seen his work before. Now, Cesare is an interesting show. First of all, it's over four hours long. And it's a, a Baroque piece, so it's all da capo aria, which means that there's each aria has essentially three parts to it. An A section, 
a B section, and then a third section in which that, that A is repeated again. It can make for pretty tedious listening, but you've got some of the best singers in the world doing this particular production. You can find all of their names and details on our website, operaboxscore.squarespace.com, but I'm going to run down a couple people right now that really stood up. Andreas Scholl, who was a countertenor, sang the role of Giulio Cesare. In Handel's time, that role would have been sung by a castrato, and of course, the contemporary equivalent is the countertenor. He was just fantastic. I mean, just beautiful tone, so pure, fantastic actor. Again, this is a very hard style to do, this da capo aria style, because because the first section repeats itself at the end of the aria, the eternal question is, you know, what do you do with the da capo? What do you do with that part? And his solution was just to play the text and to sing fantastically well. Jamie Barton sang the role of Sesto and, uh, excuse me, Nina Tarandek sang the role of Sesto. Jamie Barton was Cornelia. And Louise Adler was Cleopatra. For me, she had one of the most moving moments of the show. And I'm going to run down what that moment was for you now. To take a step backwards, the whole production was based on this idea of these two couples having seen a movie version of Giulio Cesare. Now, in and of itself, that's not a very original idea. I've seen productions before of Giulio Cesare, which make the connection between it and film. However, the ones I've seen tend to like set the whole thing in like a 1920s golden era music set with people running around with big movie lights and page boy caps, which is totally moronic. This one did a much more expressionistic take on it, which was to have simple projections at the beginning of each of the three acts, which conjures up the idea of watching a film. So the first projection was simply a spinning globe taken from a, a black and white universal uh, movie clip. Uh, the second act featured one of the singers finding this huge store of old-time celluloid movie canisters and ripping off the tops of them and sort of burying herself in reels and reels of old celluloid, which was very surprising and unusual. And nowhere was this made more clear than in Act 3, which is when... Cleopatra has one of her most famous arias, I would say, which is Piangero la sorte mia, which is when she's lamenting about losing Cesare forever. And there was a t very tall white curtain behind her. And through a rear projection, we saw the credits of this film, Giulio Cesare, that the cast had been watching. Uh, Cleopatra's the only person on stage at this point. And that moment for me unified everything about the production. I mean, this is the beginning of Act 3, so we still have like 45 minutes to go. But it was such a simple way of unifying this idea of the film and this idea of when one's life has no more reason or, or point to it, basically, like watching the credits of the closing credits of your own life scrolling by. I, I won't forget it, you know, and, and that's really 
all you need is is just a strong visual image. That said, of course, brings me back to my top five list of things that you need for your German productions. And the last one on the list is you've got to make sure the very last thing in the opera that you see makes no sense whatsoever. For example, in Giulio Cesare, we've done four hours in what is a what is a it's a long show. The production was abstract. These singers not in any specific time or place. It certainly wasn't Roman or Egyptian even. Uh, in fact, it was very contemporary. The final scene of the opera is basically played back in this living room of someone's house where we had. Uh, been led to believe they've been watching this film of Giulio Cesare. And literally after the final cutoff of the note, a man wearing the head of an alligator walks through the door. Why? Absolutely no idea. Maybe he's supposed to be like a crocodile from the Nile or something. I, I really wasn't sure. Uh, or in Regina, to go back to that opera back in mine again, we sat through, you know, two hours, 49 minutes of straight up traditional opera. This is a show that takes place in a factory. We saw a factory. It takes place in 1848. People were in the clothes from 1848. The last thing we see, however, is a huge bust of the woman Germania, who was, she's like our Statue of Liberty, basically. She's the hallmark of freedom and unity. This huge bust, which is probably like 15 feet tall, is rolled onto the stage it starts to bleed black blood out of its eyes, and then it bursts into flames, which is pretty odd to begin with. That is followed by the whole chorus, which is on stage at this time, belting out the last number of the show. In their hands, they have these little sponges with black makeup on them, and they wipe from like the tops of their cheekbones all the way down their cheeks to mirror these sort of black tears. No explanation why, totally out of context, and that's literally the last thing we see. So there you go. You can now stage your own German opera production as long as you remember my five things. Gotta have footlights, a random piece of American culture, the inexplicable use of animals, sexy women in bras and panties and stockings, and whatever the last thing is that you see on stage has got to make absolutely no sense at all. We'll be right back with In the Huddle. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score, America's talk radio show about opera. Now, I hear you say an opera ain't your thing, but get this. We tackle everything about opera and body slam it into a sports radio setup. The result? 60 minutes of in-depth analysis, outrageous opinions, and good, clean fun. You might even learn something. Opera class, sports radio crass. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist. Let's go inside the huddle. I think I forgot to give grades, by the way, to that production of Cesare in Frankfurt. Um, absolutely going to give those singers an A, no question. Amazing voices. And, and these are world-class singers here. Also going to give the production an A. It was so simple. It was so straightforward. Is that my aesthetic? Yes, absolutely. But like, it's difficult to do that 
in the DiCapo Aria style and not make it boring. And that show is L-O-N-G long, and I was there for every single minute. So A to Johannes Erhardt and his production team. Lastly, I'm going to give Frankfurt Opera an A itself just for the type of crowd that it gets in there. I mean, look, I think we all know that by and large, most opera houses, at least in America – have people going that are in their 60s, 70s, maybe even 80s. That is not the vibe in Frankfurt. It's a younger town, perhaps, a lot of you know business types, that sort of thing, a lot of people with some money. But really, it's people like myself in their 30s, and it's folks in their 40s that are going. They're dressed up well. It's not a big deal. They want some culture. They have the money to spend, and they go see the operas there. The Opera House itself just won a prize, by the way, uh, from Opernwelt Magazine, which is one of the big international publications, Opera House of the Year, and boy, did they deserve it. Stefan Umhai is my guest on the show this week. I set him up in the intro. I think I forgot to add that he is also a prompter. You can add that to his list of things that he does. That is how I got to know him in Darmstadt. I was an assistant director there. He was a prompter. We just kind of got along. His English is fantastic, by the way. He trained and performed as a dancer in London. You're going to love this interview. He tells you a real inside scoop on what it's like to work in Germany. He talks about the culture at large. and He's going to tell you a story which you will find surprising and very moving about the intersection between art and the refugee challenge, which is facing Germany at the moment. Sit back, relax, enjoy. Stefan Umhai, it is so good to see you. It has been a long time since I've seen you uh, back in Darmstadt. Um, here we are in your office in beautiful Meiningen. Your, uh, Meiningen, the city, is more beautiful than your office. That's true. <laughs> um, straight away you see how beautiful it is. It's old German. Uh, was it a duke? Was it a... God knows. Some... It was the Duke of Saxe-Meiningen. Duke, okay. Yeah, Duke we would it was. say the Duke. And it looks like my home city, Heidelberg, just without people. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very famous place, Meiningen, right? Because of this Duke who essentially invented the idea of realism and the idea of the director, right? In, in theater, yeah. In, in theater. Right, in yeah, they they even say they they put out a law that all his his what do you call it people there his 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 under the people he was his, reigning over yeah his his populace or his, his underling his folks his folks his right. folks they all could go to the theater without paying only those who didn't go would have to pay a tax on that. <laughs> I'm not sure whether that is right, but I heard that story several times from several people. <laughs> You have done everything in the business that I know. You have been a dancer. You have been an actor. You have been singer. a singer. I even made music. You've made music. <laughs> You've been a prompter. Um, choreographer. Choreographer, right, exactly. Uh, and it into assistant director. And assistant director. The list goes on <laughs> and on. Uh, our first episode of our three-part series about opera in Germany really focused on Berlin. Mm-hmm. and the three big opera houses in Berlin. Here we are in Meiningen in central Germany. Uh, I'm going on to Darmstadt and to some other more provincial opera houses there. Uh, Don't tell them that. I know. <laughs> Don't worry, I won't, I won't say that. Uh, but how would you, how would you um, describe the differences between you know those big opera houses in Berlin 
and these smaller opera houses elsewhere? What are, if there are any differences, what are some of those differences? Actually, I don't believe there are that many differences because there's such a lot of exchange as well. Uh, on each level. I mean, the directors change from small house to big houses and back. Uh, the actors, the singers, they sing everywhere. Um, the way theater works in Germany is basically everywhere the same. Um, of course, money plays a role. Berlin is a poor city. They are constantly discussing about closing some of the theaters there, and they have closed theaters or parts of them. Uh, put dancing dance companies together and all these things. So um, I don't think there's that much difference. If you're looking for avant-garde, you can find that everywhere. But of course, the audience—you get more of the audience in the in the in, in the in the cultural centers in the big cities for for uh, new land in 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 theater art mm -hmm. in the smaller cities. They try what they can do to to direct also in new ways, but the audience doesn't all, always take it. Mm -hmm. So basically you could say if you want new work and more experimental work, you may go to the centers. And if you want theater as your grandfathers liked it, mm -hmm. you go to the to the smaller theaters. But no, you will find a bit of everything everywhere, of course. That leads into my next question for you, which was uh, about traditional versus experimental opera in Germany. Um, a point that I've tried to make is that from an American perspective, we see opera in Germany as always crazy and wacky and wild. But it sounds like there actually is a place for so-called traditional productions and traditional opera in, in Germany. Is that found only outside of the, of the big cities? No, or? no, no. As I said, everybody does everything. Mm -hmm. um, the, I think the big places can afford to be more experimental because they got more money. Mm -hmm. Mind you, I'm not talking about Berlin. That's a poor city. Yeah. Um, poor but sexy. They, that's the official slogan they use <laughs> as a city. <laughs> the old, the old mayor used uh, use that slogan, yeah. which became very famous. Um, um, well, from the American view, you see it as very wacky over here. Um, that's because the theater is sponsored by the state and by the communities. Um, you won't, you don't make money by theater in Germany because they they really spend a lot of money on the productions. There are many people working inside the theater. Um, our house here has about I think 250 people working in Darmstadt. It was about 500. So um, all this has to be paid. Um, all all the materials they won't really save a lot on materials. I remember that story in, in when we did Evita in Darmstadt and Evita came out to sing Don't Cry For Me Argentina. She wore this coat, fur coat, okay. a real fur coat, which was bought for 5,000 euros. Um, only she she had it on by while she came on stage, mm -hmm. took it off before she sang, gave it to someone who took it off stage and that was it. Wow. 5,000 euros gone. Um, you won't find that in America. So, yeah, it looks all very, very wacky over here. But, no, you, it, we, we are the mecca of theater in the world with all the good and bad that goes with it. 
I mean, you won't find any place in the world with so many theaters in such a good condition, with so many dance companies and actors and singers and even puppet theater, which here in the East is very, very popular still, and which also costs a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, yes, um, we can afford to do everything over here. Oh, I don't know if we can, but we do afford it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so seen from the outside, it looks very wacky, but to us it's normal. Let me ask you, what do the audiences make of these so-called, you know, wacky productions? Uh, I was in Weimar to see um, Der Freischutz mm. by Weber, um, and I reviewed it earlier on the podcast. It was suitably strange, and many times the audience was laughing. Mm. Uh I wasn't sure if they were laughing in a very detached way because mm. they thought it was so silly and wacky or if they sort of knew what, what to make of it. You know, how do audiences take? Well, the further question would be if, if it was silly and <laughs> if you did it in a traditional way as well. I mean, it all depends on the director. And the reception also depends on, on the people. Mm -hmm. I, I, I also do a lot of work in art. And uh, I used to say that um, the spectator is always right. Hmm. Maybe he doesn't understand what the artist wanted to do, but he, he's got the right to see it as what he likes to see it. So that's in theater the same thing. Hmm. Um, we might work on a production for two months and think, think oh, that's going to be great, that's going to be new, that's going to be experimental, they must love it, and they won't. Hmm. Then, then we work on other productions. Think, oh God, what is this guy telling us to do? Terrible, and it, it's a huge success, hmm. and that happens all the time. So I don't think you can really foresee. Right. There's always a big percentage of surprise in it, how the audience will take it, and that goes for the small places as for the big places. Let me go back to your mention of Evita in Darmstadt. Something we've talked about on earlier episodes of our show is the place of musical theater in an opera house, yeah. which is quite rare in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems to be much more prevalent in Germany, um, where people are doing musicals, you know, so Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice, they're doing Lerner and Lowe, like mm -hmm. My Fair Lady. Mm -hmm. uh, we did... Anna Tevka yeah. in Darmstadt, yeah, which Americans would know as uh, Fiddler on the Roof, yeah. although it works fantastically well in German. Uh, tell me about the place of, of musical theater in the German opera house. Is that something that's unusual? Is that something that should not be there? What's your opinion? No, of course it has to be there. It's part of the theater heritage. It's what... Uh, as a, talking as a businessman, businessman is called the milk cow. Mm -hmm. They they really make m money with this. I mean, make money. It costs a lot to produce, but if if anything brings a bit of money into the uh, cash till, then it's the musical because mm -hmm. people love it. Still, um, old classical musicals as new ones. Mm -hmm. um, we got a special musical theaters as well, mm -hmm. like like London or New York, where you got like a whole season each night playing the same musical. Mm -hmm. um, in the traditional German theaters, in the three-part opera houses, as we used to say, where there is opera, um, dance and acting, plus, of course, puppets and sometimes the, the orchestra with the concerts is seen as a fifth part. Um, 
it's it's all these puzzles that that make an, a German opera house a normal traditional opera house. So we have to do everything, and musical is a big big part of that. Mm. We won't do like five musicals a year in these houses. Like we do like one or two, or sometimes we we produce a musical and let it run for two seasons for two years, and then meanwhile in the second year a new one is is coming to it. And but without that, um, we'd have I think more financial problems. There are financial problems like everywhere in the world and um, they cut down more and more and productions become smaller and but uh, the musical is a big part to have it have have our theater run as it runs mm. as it did run for a mm. long time. Mm. And I think that's right because um, we have to draw as many people into the theater as we can and uh, there are people who don't like classical serious plays for example uh but they will come to the, to the to the musicals and maybe we can we can that's an advert for us if we produce a good a good musical maybe some of those people will say oh, let, let's see that that play i've heard about it let's let's have a go hmm. so it's very 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 important and it's a lot of fun you <laughs> said you, to, you you said fiddle on the roof in Darmstadt. that yeah. was a wonderful production and i always always wanted to do everything in the theater so i'd really miss musical Mm. if we didn't do that Mm. and musical can be it's it's like any other play or concert can be done well or badly Mm. i've seen good musicals in new york and bad musicals in new york as well (laughs) uh one of the other challenges facing Germany, we've read about it from the U.S., is uh, asylum seekers and refugees. Mm -hmm. It's a huge topic. I'm fascinated by it. How is it affecting life in Meiningen, and how is it affecting art here in the Opera House? Well, that's two different themes we have to talk about. The German Opera Houses and theaters they're really on the side of the refugees. We're doing a lot of work, especially here in mining, and to help refugees. We just finished a production with and about refugees. Um, um, they told their stories within this production, and we we put that on stage. Um, it was always sold out. We even think about putting on more of these shows and. Uh, we have a little thing in Germany before each premiere, every actor or singer or everybody involved in production prepares little presents uh, for, for the colleagues. So we got a lot of chocolate before, before the curtain goes up to, to eat. And this year, for example, the mining theater said we won't do that, but we will put the money that, that, that should be spent on that into a little piggy. Mm-hmm. And all that money goes helping refugees mm. goes to helping refugees mm. so um uh we also there are there are colloquiums and meetings be- with between the theaters um what ca- where, where they discuss what can be done to to help refugees but also and now we're moving over to the second part of the question also how to make the the problem be understood by the population mm. because i'm sure you must have heard about um in the in American uh, medias, uh, the German public is not a hundred percent helping those. Or, or, uh, yeah, to say the least, it's terrible. I mean, even in American election fighting, it's <laughs> it's it's a part of the, of the discussion. 
um, uh, I, I I witnessed a lot of bad info, bad information in 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 the population. And my neighbors, mm. who are lovely people, mm. but there are a lot of resentments against those people. And I think, yeah, we Germany had to had to had to to do with 1.1 million refugees last year and I don't think this year there will be less, mind you, <laughs> depending how it all develops now. But then we always had times where we had millions of people to support, like after the Second World War, probably after the First, the first World War as well, after the reunification of the two parts of Germany. Um, and... There is, there is a very nice example. It's like 80 people are in a bar. One comes in and all the 80 say, oh, it's full. You have to go out. Mm. We're by far away from really having a problem yet. But there are resentments. And uh, it, yeah, it's, it makes me a lot afraid mm -hmm. of, of what's going on because we all lived through that again uh, already 80 years ago. Right. And uh, I don't think it, those things will happen again. I mean, uh, we, we are democratic, a very democratic country. But there are people who are very extreme, right? Mm. Like everywhere in the world, in the States as well. Sure. So um, we really have to, as a theater, and we really have to look out and, and be against that. Uh, that's Can part of our work in a theater. And then tell me more about the piece that you worked on with the refugees here in the yeah. theater. 22 refugees from Afghanistan, mainly from Syria, from Iraq, one from Serbia, a little Muslim uh, Roma girl. I didn't know that the Romas being Muslim. Right. Um, they all told this story and these stories were knit together to a, to a one-hour theater piece. And they they acted in that. They, there was a lot of pantomime and a bit of dance in it. Music, film. Uh, for me as a stage manager, it was a <laughs> living hell. <laughs> But uh, to, to witness those people growing together, not even speaking the, all the same language. Not They, they didn't all speak, speak Arab. I learned some Arab, but <laughs> they didn't all speak it. Did, they, was, did they all speak German? Or no, 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 no. Some of them just arrived. Most of them just arrived last year or the year so before. So how did you communicate? English. Oh, my God. English, mime, a uh, bit of French. And yeah. um, it was wonderful, wonder, wonder, wonderful to see them grow together. Yeah. Um, become more and more self-assured of what they're doing, to realize how important it is what they're doing, to see that they actually uh, improved the little German they had, and also how they actually accepted each other because, of course, there was about a third were women and two-thirds were men. Mm -hmm. There was no one wearing a scarf or, of course, not a burqa or something like that. Right. They were modern people just like everyone just like you listening that and, and us living here um, they there was one who uh, I don't know how he grew up in Syria mm -hmm. 
but uh, he was gay mm -hmm. and very openly so, very, uh, yeah, very outward. Yeah. And uh, I wondered how, how he lived in Syria and asked one, one of the women working in the, in the production and he, she said, well, that was difficult for him, but it's also difficult here. Well, by the end of the production, everybody was cheering everybody and mm. him as well. And he was so integrated and it was a big part of, Uh, it was a big step towards integration, what they did. Mm. And they were so open and, and they wanted to know how it works in the theater and uh, learned so many techniques. And they embraced me from the second day on. They came and embraced me. And I'm a quite open guy. So we really went on, got on very, very well. So you have all these languages. You have so much emotion at stake. And these people, are they're not actors either, right? No, no, of course. Uh, in German theater, I, I told you about all those different types of theater we're doing in a German theater. And there's also, in most theaters, there is a movement um, where we put on shows with amateurs from outside. And and this was part of, of, of this of this sixth stream <laughs> we're, we're, we're working on. The show is, is done now, but... Uh... It might come back? Yeah, because it was, of course, sold out to the last place. You couldn't get a ticket. Yeah. Uh, we, we did three shows because uh, we thought it's going to be difficult to, to calculate. Um, but then it was an immense success. Uh, we plan to do more. Whether we will be able to do it, that also depends on whether we got free space on stage and whether we get all the people together again. I mean, they, they got their lives as well. But the attention is there, and I would be very, very happy to, to be stressed again as a state of religion. <laughs> <laughs> Stefan Umhai, so grateful to you to be on the podcast. So great to see you again. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you very much for you. All the best. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. All right, time to wrap our show up with Good Call, Bad Call. When we talk about something from the past week, which has been a good call, something great, or something that is totally lousy, thus a bad call. I got one of each. My good call is, in general, I'm just so thrilled with how much German-language opera is programmed here in Germany. That's not a surprising thing, of course, but compared to the U.S., where German is by far the least performed of the three major operatic languages, Italian, French, German, in that order, it is great to see composers not only like Richard Wagner, Richard Strauss, even Johann Strauss, but also somebody like Leutzing that I mentioned earlier in the review of Regina, people like Eric Korngold, uh, Ernst Krenak, these are all names which we would never come across in America. And because those composers are such a, a part of the heritage here, it's great to be able to have the chance to see them performed. Bad call is going to be is that there are no shows anywhere in Germany, as far as I can tell, on Monday or Tuesday. Not quite sure why that is. Maybe it's just this week. We're coming up to Easter. But come on, Germany, sort it out. Can't you stagger those schedules and give a desperate opera lover, podcaster like myself something to see? That's it for our show this week. Our in-show announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. At WNUR, our program director is Bill Scholne, and the general manager is Maddie Higgins. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra, except for that thing you heard at the top of the show, and I'm pretty sure you know where that came from. 
Special thanks to Konstantin Ostheim and Stefan Umhai in Meiningen. Thanks also to Oliver Macho Camacho for checking in from Chicago. However you listen to our podcast, please let us know what you think. Be sure to leave comments and reviews. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Opera Box Score. Be sure to like our Facebook page, and if you know people who would enjoy our show, help us spread the word by sharing our posts. You can email us at operaboxscore@gmail.com and suggest a Chalk Talk segment. What topic would you like to weigh in on? On our website, operaboxscore.squarespace.com, you can stream archived episodes and learn more about our team. I'm back on March 28, podcasting from Munich with more interviews, more reviews, and a story about what it's like to move from America to Germany and maybe never go back. Join me by listening to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to keep the conversation about opera going, preferably while drinking a cold German beer.